Japan by River Cruise is made possible thanks to those who donate to the show at japanbyrivercruise.com and due to the generosity of our corporate sponsors. This is a message from Gold's Gym. Hey, you may have heard the news that we filed for bankruptcy during the pandemic. Turns out that all our muscles are pretty useless in the face of a tax bill. Apparently, you can't just challenge the IRS to arm wrestle to settle your debt. Anyway, we know that there are many long-term foreign residents of Japan who still want to re-enter the country and return to their homes and families. The Japanese Immigration Bureau has been very clear that there are only two categories of people who are currently allowed back in for any reasons other than humanitarian ones. Those are newly employed teachers at international schools and Olympic athletes. So if you really want to get back into the country, your options are become a teacher or achieve Olympic standard physical fitness. Now it's clearly crazy to think that Japan would hire entirely unqualified individuals as teachers, so that's not going to be your path to re-entry. So why not try to get really, really good at a sport in a few months? Yeah, pay us enough and we'll trick you into thinking you can do that. That's kind of what we do. As an added bonus, odds are pretty good that if Japan does decide to go through with the Olympics next year, most countries won't send their real athletes anyway, so you could get back to work and win a gold medal in shot put. Gold's Gym. Apply for a membership today and get started on pursuing your unrealistic goals. And also work out. Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Ollie Horn. And joining us this week is Matt Alt, author of the new book, Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World, as well as many other books. In fact, the Kappa section in Yokai Attack, his book with Hiroko Yoda, has officially been incorporated into the Japanese River Cruise Operational Safety Manual. Matt, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on board. On this week's show... Japanese anime culture in the political sphere. Matt writes extensively in his new book about the role of Nichan and later 4chan in radical political movements, but we're also going to talk about the pro-democratic protests in Thailand that have adopted a Japanese cartoon hamster as a symbol. Because nothing says unafraid to defy authority like something Japanese. Plus, Ali's got your weekly River Cruise recommendation. Ali? Yes, this week's recommendation is the River Cruise Simulator game, available to download on the App Store, Google Play, and Steam. I'll be looking at some of the newly released expansion packs, which are available as in-app purchases, including the long-awaited River Cruise Simulator expansion pack, which will finally allow you to enjoy a virtual trip down the river while playing the River Cruise Simulator game. And big controversy this week over the official grand opening of Japan's first-ever drive-through River Cruise. While some are arguing that this is exactly the sort of innovation the industry needs, others contend that this is a very weird way to rebrand a bridge. We'll hear more from both sides of the river later in the show. But first, Soap Talk. Matt, in your new book, you talk a lot about Japanese cultural products that had an influence on your childhood. And I recognized a lot of the same things from my own childhood, like Voltron and Power Rangers and the Game Boy. But I'm wondering, at what age did you really become aware that these were specifically Japanese things? And what did Japan mean to you back then? I was pretty young when I figured out that all of these things I was enjoying, like, you know, the Nintendo Entertainment System or Transforming Toys or, you know, the cartoons I was watching on TV were Japanese. And it became pretty clear to me that at 
that tender age that Japan was this fantasy land of, of a place where people loved robots and monsters as much as I did. Huh. And I think that's actually kind of how everybody sees Japan now. <laughs> the land of robots and monsters. Certainly. I mean, you know, Godzilla is a superstar on par with, you know, almost any, uh, you know, actor, actress you can name, I think. It's got some yeah, box office Yeah, you got, you got billing above Matthew Broderick. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> God, that was a terrible film. That was, that was a really terrible film. I like the new remakes, though. The new Godzilla uh, films that are coming out of Hollywood are actually really cool. Yeah, yeah. What what's interesting for me about all of these products is apart from say the the games or or the movies which are quite obviously set in Japan. Japan wasn't really pushing its Japanness in these products, were they? One of the kind of eye-opening things of writing pure invention was it being driven home to me that almost all of these hit products that worked their way into our hearts and minds abroad weren't made for us at all. They were made for a Japanese audience. They were made for Japanese people. And we just happened to, they happened to satisfy a sweet spot for us, the same one that they did for locals. Um, so yeah, it's the, the kind of takeover of the global fantasy sphere, if you want to call it that, by Japanese sensibilities is very much a grassroots phenomenon from that standpoint. Even though these things are made by, in many cases, huge corporations like Sony or Nintendo, um, it wasn't part of some kind of concerted effort you know, it just happened. And do you find it surprising that these subcultures emerged in a pre-internet era? Yeah, well, you know, subculture has always been with us, right? And so back in time, you had to go to conventions or like video game arcades or places where your tribe gathered, so to speak. And that was more difficult back in time. You had to actually physically go somewhere. Now you can find your tribe just by like picking up your iPhone from next to your bed in the morning and logging on or, you know, into whatever your preferred social media uh, services. So, you know, I, I don't think the actual act of trying to find people who are into the same stuff you are is any different. It's just much easier now. I wasn't aware that a lot of these things were Japanese until I was much older. I think I, I used a Game Boy. I, I played with Transformers. I think the first thing that I ever officially registered as Japanese was Pokemon. And I was already too old to kind of get into Pokemon when it came out. But even without knowing that they were Japanese, I still enjoyed them and responded to them. And then later finding out that they were Japanese um, does kind of create an image of the country. Yeah. But do you think there's room for people who who have nothing to do with Japan to enjoy these things? Because I know oh, there's a absolutely. lot of argument. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you certainly it, there's you don't need to know anything about like you know the shogunate of Japan to appreciate the Walkman. Do you know what I mean? Or, you know, you don't need to know anything about Japanese you know, culture to play a game of Super Mario Brothers or Pokemon. You know, when you when you look back, you can kind of see what kind of cultural norms and trends created these things. You can see how what, where they were born from. But you absolutely these aren't intended as vehicles for transmitting Japanese culture abroad. They're intended as products for people to enjoy. That's why they're fantasy delivery devices. And uh, as I call them in the book. And so yeah, you absolutely don't have to be Japanese. That's the whole point. Because our sensibilities have kind of synchronized in a lot of ways. I'm wondering, the more the sensibilities synchronize and the more these Japanese cultural artifacts become more prevalent, do you see like a hierarchy being built of the people who can appreciate Japanese authenticity? Kind of like the American otaku who go, well, you don't really get it. Yeah, You're not really course. allowed access to this space. <laughs> 
People are people are always, you know, in any subcultural scene, you know, there's always the people who are, I was into it before it was cool. You know what I mean? Oh my God, we even have that for listeners for this dog shit podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, what we, have, the, we have a guy who writes in messages who refers to himself as the original Brian. <laughs> the first listener, the er listener. No, that's great. I mean, that just goes to show what a great podcast you have. But, you know, the, uh, the, these, the, the products that I write about in Pure Invention are more than just hits. They're so ubiquitous that it's very difficult to imagine life before them. Like, it's right. very difficult to imagine a time when we couldn't carry our music with us or play video games on the go or post bullshit on anonymous bulletin board systems. You know, this is just part of the fabric of life now. So that's a big part of it, too. Now we're in an era where Japan is exporting far less of this or rather other countries are exporting far more and that's taking up the same space that Japan used to occupy. Do you now think that it's a bit crass that only now has Japan realized, hey, we have all this soft power and now governments are looking to leverage cute manga figures to promote their political agendas? They call it soft power because it's the opposite of hard power, which is things like tanks and economic incentives. Yeah. You know, you can roll your tanks into another country. That's hard power. You know, you can you can levy economic sanctions against another country or use economic, you know, bonuses as a, as a kind of carrot. But you can't really say, you can't go into a negotiating position and be like, well, these guys love Pokemon. So they're absolutely <laughs> going to, you know, sign this contract. Boy, we have this in the bag. You know, it's not, it, it's, and also, you know, there's nothing less cool than somebody in a position of authority, uh, an authority figure telling you something's cool. It's like your school, you know, the best way to get Pokemon out of schools is to have your school principal come out and be like, I love them Pokemon. I'm playing Pokemon now. Probably all oh, the kids right. would run from it at that point. I you hope know? they Pokemon go to the voting booth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because cute characters being involved in politics where they shouldn't be gives us a good opportunity to Pokemon go to the news. Bobby, aside from Corona, which we're not going to be talking about this week, what's in the news this week? There are pro-democratic protests in Thailand that have adopted the Japanese anime character Ham Taro, a hamster, as one of their official mascots. Uh, Matt, can you tell us more about this? That is one democratic hamster, my friends. He is uh, fighting <laughs> he for all of our democracy. Freedoms. He does. <laughs> and what children's what children's show doesn't focus heavily on democracy? Um, <laughs> So my understanding of these protests is that, you know, Hamtaro is this kind of cute, almost Pokemon Pikachu-esque character. It's, it's an anime about a family of, of hamsters going about their hamster business uh, aimed at children. And it was a big hit in Japan about 10, maybe 15, 10 years back or so. And it's not really much in the, in the headlines in, in Japan anymore, you know, because we're sort of novelty and fat obsessed here in Japan. And, and I, like they, the idea, I like the idea this is now a has-been hamster, yeah, which you now just exactly. see in, in kind of some Don't kind of bar, just smoking way. a cigarette. That used to be on TV, boys. And <laughs> also, also, this didn't even make it through like a full season in the U.S. because democracy is on the way out there these days. <laughs> Especially when being argued by hamsters. Apparently, it's huge in Southeast Asia, though. Hamtaro continues to prosper there um they're multiplying like hamsters throughout the airwaves <laughs> of uh all sorts of southeast asian countries and it's big in thailand it's very popular there and the protesters basically apparently repurposed the theme song like it, the theme song is about hamsters eating sunflower seeds but apparently they changed it so that it's you know 
now it's about pro-democracy slogans and things like that. So it was just a kind of well-known signifier among the demographic of people who are protesting now that would allow them to kind of slot in their own uh, kind of satire. It's super familiar. Yeah. yeah. What, what I understand is these are mainly student activist groups, and they grew up watching this when they were younger, kind of on on breakfast TV. Yes, and you so, know, so it's not like it's yeah. not like it's even current right now. It's like it was current five to ten years ago, and and that's got a certain amount of nostalgia in Thailand. Well, when you live in a consumer economy like all of us do, basically the things that you consume, especially when you're a kid, become a signifier to people in your social circle. You know, like how in my generation people would be talking about the Star Wars movies, you know, or the Terminator, or the films that we grew up on. Now things are cast in terms, apparently, in Thailand of Tarot, you know? Um, but yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. You see the protests in the U.S. where people are, are playing the uh, Imperial March from Star Wars when the cops come through. Absolutely. But they've and, also kind of adopted the hamster as a metaphor for kind of the circular nature of not going anywhere, the lack of progress in the government. Is that right? The hamster wheel of life. You know, it's, I guess Hamtaro is a little bit deeper than we, we gave the show credit for. <laughs> that was just lucky, though, wasn't it? That, that's obviously not how it started. That, 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 that seems as contrived as how now people are starting to come up with these acronyms to avoid um, COVID by starting with a word and then working backwards with what the letters from that word. You know, so it's like, don't be a man, be a woman. A man is mind touching your face, avoid shaking hands with people. No go near people who have COVID, right? I mean, obviously, like, yeah, it makes sense. But it's obviously started because, like, it's it's cute and it's memorable. In the case of Hamtaro, this is something that you wouldn't necessarily associate with, you know, pro-democracy, with protests, with standing right. up to authority. But in other cases, like in the Hong Kong protests, yes. there are these anime messages and anime storylines that protesters and demonstrators are latching onto that are about defying authority, right, Matt? So, yeah, yeah. The Hamtaro thing is unique because it's a super kawaii character that's being used in protests. But the concept of anime being used in protests is actually becoming more and more common in the world today. Just like you said, there was a, a big case of uh, Hong Kong student protesters using Evangelion in particular, uh, as uh, a kind of rallying point for their message. And there's actually a quote I found online where one of the protesters is saying, we are all Shinji. And what he means by that, Shinji is this like totally isolated, adrift, depressed kid who is forced into this global conflict that he wants no part of. And the kids in Hong Kong feel the same way. They feel like they have no like reliable, trustworthy authority figures in their life. Right. They feel like they can't trust the government. They feel like they're being forced into this monstrous situation beyond their control. So that's a case where the actually the anime does sort of map to their situation. What do you think about the idea that this is Japan-produced content for Japanese people that have these messages of rebellion against authority. And people in other countries are latching on to them to help them defy authority. But Japan itself, which is producing and consuming this content more than anyone else, has a very anti-political, anti-involved, anti-demo culture. But not in its illustrated entertainment. Because mm. Japanese manga, in particular, has always been a hotbed for uh, people espousing progressive or anti-establishment beliefs. Back in the 1960s, the student protest days, 
Like the protesters rallied around Ashita no Joe, which is this, on the surface, it's just a boxing manga. It's a really well right, done right. boxing manga. But they saw it as a kind of parable for the working Spoiler man. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read it, there is no Ashita for Joe. <laughs> well, it's not exactly true. But anyway, they... I will leave that for the for the boxing fans out there to read through. Yeah. But it's um literally people would be reading you know manga in place of Karl Marx back in the 1960s. So it's there's yeah. always been this kind of anti-establishment bent in illustrated Gundam. Gundam's another example of this. It's done by it's basically created by a bunch of former student protesters and people who are supportive of uh, of the uh, student movement. And that's why it features these kind of teenagers who are thrown into a war by venal politicians who they can't mm. trust. Like the authority figures are all adults who are assholes, basically. I guess that makes sense, because if you want to become a manga artist in Japan, you have to break away from the status quo. You're not following the pre-designated path of becoming a salary man or a housewife. You're following a creative industry and you're living precariously. And so... Yeah you're probably more naturally going to be aligned with those kind of political views. Well, and not only that, it's like it was literally a kind of catch-all in the 1970s in particular for people who, if you got arrested in a student protest in the 1960s or 1970s, your life was basically over. You couldn't land a job at a regular company. And so, so many of these people who had either had that kind of background or were disillusioned by what mainstream life offered them filtered into the anime industry and into the manga industry in the 1970s, which is why manga and anime have such a progressive leftist bent to them, even That's now. That's interesting. I wonder if there's a disconnect between the thought that goes into producing it and the thought or lack of thought that goes into consuming it. Because for as subversive or as progressive as manga can be, if somebody like Prime Minister Abe comes out and says, I love reading manga. I think everybody should read. Or was it Aso? No, it was, was it Aso. It was Aso. And he was reading with Rosen Maiden or something like that. It was some... But for such a conservative politician to yes. be like, I like manga. I read manga. And to get such a popularity boost for that to become such a... Such a well, it's calculating. They're calculating, right? They calculate that manga readers had become enough of a voting block that if they appealed to them, even with this superficial appeal you know, maybe it would help get their party back into power or whatever, or maintain power. That's just a venal calculating, you know, position. I don't think it has anything to do with Taro Aso actually reading manga or appreciating it. And probably the themes and, you know, like uh, Shintaro Ushihara, there was a, you know, he, there was a huge, he, he was the mayor, uh, excuse me, the governor of Tokyo uh, for many years. And he led this kind of ordinance to ban the selling of what they saw as obscene manga on the shelves of convenience stores and stuff like yeah. that. So there's always this push and pull back and forth. It's all politics. You know, but once something starts selling in huge numbers, then suddenly the politics go out the window and, oh, we can use this. And in one case, they tried to use this anime culture or these manga cultures to uh, curry favor with the Trump administration. Oh, yeah, God. Well, you know, famously, when Trump won in 2016, it was an upset, right? Nobody was expecting it. And the Abe administration had built all of these, you know, bridges with what they, the Hillary Clinton's campaign, because they assumed she would win. When she mm -hmm. didn't, they were out in the cold and they had no idea how to appeal to Trump. And so what they did was they basically appealed to him through products. They, they gave him Japanese golf clubs. They, they made, they, they hired Pico Taro to make a video for him. They started uh -huh. giving Pokemon toys to Ivanka to give to her children. Which seems like a backhanded insult, really. <laughs> <laughs> so this was actually one case where the government did levy soft power in a sense. Yeah. But, you know, their audience was just one. They realized that they yeah. had this person who really liked shiny things and they could yeah. kind of dangle them in front of him to get a uh, outcome that they wanted. And I think 
it worked. Yeah, and I think it was timely too, because Pico Taro, you couldn't use him in any context today because he says pen too much, and that just spreads the coronavirus around. Yes. I want to go back to this idea of trying to curry favor with the Trump administration by dangling shiny things. Because I read one of the articles about this, and it was really funny to me because Japanese people, for their, for all of their hone to tatemai, all of their you know, surface presentation versus what they really think, sometimes when you see them in translation, they can really accidentally be super directly honest. Okay. And at the time... The, the guy who was in charge of arranging this visit with Ivanka Trump, where he was giving her Pokemon gifts and you're trying to arrange for Pico Tara to sing for her daughter, um, he was quoted, this is the guy from the Japanese embassy, Yoshinori Takazawa, he's quoted in the article as saying, a lot of Japanese citizens believe that the US and Japan are close friends. And the phrase, like the use of the word believe is just so perfect. Maybe it's not really true. <laughs> um but, you know, it's, it, I, I do think there's actually a lot of affinity between Japan and the U.S. now that's completely different than it was back in the 80s. Like, you know, the grown-ups in my life were like, well, Japan, you know, didn't we defeat them in World War II, you know? And now there's just none of that. It's all character-based. We interact with Japan through its characters. Even, even in a character front in the 80s, I remember, like, I'll occasionally go back and revisit some of my favorite Japan adjacent cultural artifacts from that time. And I recently rewatched the original live action Ninja Turtles movie. Oh, yeah, sure. And oh my God, the ignorance and the casual racism about Japan in that movie. It's there's a so, so like the the Ninja Turtles trainer Splinter, his trainer is this Japanese karate expert. And right. none of the Japanese characters have Japanese names. They're all right. like vaguely Asian sounding racist yeah, yeah, names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at one point, the foot show up in the subway to try to attack April O'Neil. And she says, oh, what did I forget to pay my Sony bill? Oh, so God. not oh, only wow. the casual racism, but the wow. lazy writing. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Why would you have a Sony bill? Well, the, you know, I don't know if you've... Um... <laughs> Did there, there's a there's now a Netflix Daredevil show, and yes. it came out a couple of years ago. The second season is all they're like fighting the Yakuza ninja and stuff like that because it's based on a comic book that came out in the eighties, you know, and uh, that like I don't know in, injection of of Japanese bad guys in the form of like ninja and salarymen and yakuza is is so dated now. Like it, it just right. Like, if it was a modern day bad guy, it should be opening up the door to the guy who's trying to take your NHK payment. <laughs> God, what a what a thankless job that is. Or maybe it should be like, I don't know, like a, a super cute mascot, you know, who's trying to hug you to death or something. You know, maybe that's the enemy of the of the modern era. Have you seen, speaking of Netflix and uh, Japanese productions, uh, Agretzko, Aggressive Retzko. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This, this is another one that kind of ties into anime and Japanese animation as progressive or conveying a political message well it's it's so agretzko is what she's she's this red panda office lady who goes out at night after she's been like abused by her boss nonstop and sings death metal karaoke right is this is, yeah this is right and it's, it's agretzko is from sanrio it's the same company that produced hello kitty and it's really interesting because hello kitty is this placid bland by design you know kind of every character you know she fits into yeah. every situation whereas agretzko is very specific like this is a she she's like an angry office lady this is like a really like appealing to a very niche target audience but you i know, don't know how how much you want to go out on a limb and say that that's a niche target audience 
Well, because I think a lot of Japanese women who work in office yes. settings see her as an every woman. Yes, yes. No, she is. She is. No, that's why she's so successful. But I guess what I'm trying to say is Hello Kitty is very bland and she's not. She's she's very focused. Yeah. Her anger is very, and she's angry. You know, Hello Kitty's not angry. You know, Agretzko is is aggressive and angry. No, she's really great. And she, uh, Hello Kitty might be. She just can't express it because she doesn't have a mouth. Oh, <laughs> she does. Probably also but she by does. design. It's it's hidden under the fur. This was actually oh, said okay. by Hello Kitty's designer. There actually is a mouth there. There's actually this was said by and- Hello Kitty's designer when she realized how much money there was to be made in making a cartoon. <laughs> There's actually a cartoon where she has a mouth, and it's really creepy. It's like super, super scary to see Hello Kitty like, you know, opening her mouth and screaming or whatever. We'll have to dig up some some stills of that for your listeners. Well, that's the problem with these kind of things, right? Because once a cartoon's out there, you can just after the fact say, "Oh no, that was never my intention." In 10 years down the line, if China gets its way, the creators of Hello Kitty might just say, yeah, no, uh, Hello Kitty was, was always pro-Chinese <laughs> government, actually. They, Hello Kitty is actually a fan of the party. What a world we live in. Uh, I could see it so, happening. But these, these animated series, this anime culture has always kind of had ties to, uh, to the political sphere. And we've talked about it in a couple of different examples. But in your book, you talk about the anti-social network and you get really into how, you know, places like Nichan and 4chan, which started as a forum for anime yes. fandom, contributed to these radicalized political movements. Yes. And, you know, it, it was also really interesting to see how even though anime is generally made by progressive left-leaning people, how quickly it was co-opted and adopted by uh, supporters of the right and conservative causes. Um, and part of that is due to the fact that anime doesn't usually wear its politics on its sleeve. And, you know, it's, it's open to interpretation. You know, you, you kind of, you can kind of project your own values on a lot of it. Is, mm. is Dragon Ball Z, you know, espousing, espousing support for like, you know, the left or the right? It really depends on how you watch it and how you want to interpret it. So, but, you know, I, I think, Another big eye-opening moment in writing Pure Invention was realizing when I was writing about anonymous online forums that becoming angrier and angrier is is not a bug; it's a feature. When mm. you have this, and uh, uh, when you have the ability to express yourself anonymously in an economy that is really doing badly and where people are not happy in their lives, it's almost by definition going to swerve, kind of hard right patriotic, nationalistic, angry with the status quo, wanting to change things. So that was really a kind of scary chapter to write. <laughs> and not only that, but it also skews nationalist. Uh, there was something yes. that you mentioned in the book about how here's this group of people who are anonymously online to celebrate a culture that has kind of isolated them. Yes. And when you strip away identity and you strip away the things that you, you might be able to use to participate in society offline, there was a line in the book that said something along the lines of somebody you were interviewing said, the only thing that remained was that I was Japanese. Right. When you, when you have very little to, to, to brag about in your life, your nationality can kind of serve a role for that, which is why, you know, nationalism is, you know, patriotism isn't a bad thing. You know, I consider myself a, I, you know, I love my country, you know, I, this isn't, this isn't anti-patriotism, but when you want, if that becomes your sole defining trait, 
that you are American or you are Japanese, well, something has gone wrong because you should be a more rounded human being than just your allegiance to your country. Right. Right. And, uh, and that is a kind of why this is, it's a, it's a measure of a kind of sick society, I think, when you have people online who are declaring that's basically the only thing they have going for them. Well, that's the thing I find so bizarre when a Japanese person will interact with a foreigner and that foreigner will say something like, oh, I love, I love anime. And then the Japanese person will say, thank you. As if well, yes, exactly. they're an anime animator. <laughs> right. It's like, what, what have you possibly had to do with the production of anime? I think Japanese people tend to be pretty proud when they hear that something that was created in their country is popular abroad. You know, yeah, they, they take it as something that reflects on them personally. Well, some people do, I guess. I mean, I don't, you know, maybe Americans take it as a point of pride that Hollywood movies are doing so well abroad, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't even dream of being like, oh, well, thank you for watching Hollywood movies. You know, I, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't actually Cause encountered. Because it's got to work both ways, right? Because then I've got to say to you, I've noticed there's been a rise of fascism in your country. <laughs> thank and you've you. both got to go, well, thank, thank you, you very much. Noticing. Thank you. <laughs> um, I haven't actually been thanked by anybody for saying that I'd liked anime, but uh, then again, yeah. I don't really like anime. I like certain anime. I don't like anime as a genre. You know, that's like saying I like TV. Do you like movies? You know, yeah, yeah, right. It's like, do you like books? You've obviously never used Tinder in Japan. Hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 47 of Japan by River Cruise. Thank you very much to everybody who has decided to support the show by buying us a coffee. If you would like to support this show, then you can do so at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Japan by River Cruise. We're very grateful. Thank you to our guest this week, author Matt Alt. Matt, during our conversation, you teased some really interesting parts of your book, like schoolgirls driving innovation on the streets of Tokyo, or the idea that you know America is adopting Japan's style of still enjoying leisure and amusement as an adult. All of this stuff is really fascinating in the book and really fleshed out. If people would like to find it, where can they find the book? Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World is actually available wherever books are sold. Amazon, your local bookseller, support your local bookseller. Pick it up. But if you do end up supporting your local bookseller, please also PayPal Jeff Bezos some money. Because <laughs> he's, I hear he's, he's a little low on funds. You know, he really could use the extra dollars. <laughs> Thanks very much. We'll see you next week.